Real Life Real Crime is a true crime podcast brought to you weekly by Woody Overton, Jim Rathman, and executive producer Toby Tomplay. nature it should be for people that are 18 years or older heed my warning people Jim and I do not get the facts of these cases off of the internet or from some television show the facts we're retelling you were presented to us by the victims of the crimes or the perpetrators who committed the crimes against the victims my description of the crime scenes are what I saw with my own two eyes If you're going to get offended, please turn this podcast off now. Thank you. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode of Real Life, Real Crime, the podcast. And always, I'm your host, Woody Overton. Today, we're bringing you another old school story, and the name of it is Private Dancer. So listen, um, parts of the story are going to be very graphic, and then y'all... Heed my warning, people. Uh, you, you'll hear it before you hear me talking about it now. Um, but I'm, I have to be able to tell the story, and the things I'm telling you were told to me, right? So here we go. In 2006, I was working as a detective with the Livingston Parish Sheriff's Office, um, and my partner was Detective Brian Paul Smith. And I'm, I got to give you a little history on Brian Paul and I. I'm not from Livingston Parish, and I didn't start my law enforcement career in Livingston Parish. And I started another agency. But when I went to the police academy at LSU or Louisiana State University, I met a guy named Brian Paul Smith. I call him BP. Uh, let me describe Brian to you. He he's probably about 5'11", or something like that, uh, real thick, real muscular, uh, real athletic, uh, you know, good-looking dude, always had a smile on his face, just was a real cool cat, right? And and we hit it off kind of from the beginning in the police academy, and uh, he was always joking and had a smile on his face, and you could tell he was like the cool kid, from high school, but the cool kid that was cool with everybody, right? Not in a clique. Just a good, solid, down-to-earth guy. Genuinely likes people. Um, and so we hit it off from the beginning. Now, 
before I went to Livingston Parish Sheriff's Office, I had taken the job with New Orleans Police Department. But at the time, but when I went through the New Orleans Police Department application process, I was working the Southeastern Louisiana University Police Department. And we were working, like most uniform officers, we were working two days on, two days off, three days on, two days off, then um, three days off. Basically, you work 14 days a month. But I, as my side business, I had my private investigator's license. And so naturally, I couldn't work every day, but I had all cops that worked for me on their days off doing investigations. And one of them happened to work for Livingston Parish Sheriff's Office. And a real cool guy, Adam Rice, who lives in Atlanta now, I think. But Adam kept saying, man, you got to come meet Willie Grace, who's the sheriff of Livingston at the time. You got to come meet Liv- uh, Willie Grace. I'm telling you, 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 you want to come work here. I'm like, dude, I'm not going to work at Livingston Parish. You know, at the time, Livingston Parish was the butt of all the jokes. There was nothing industry-wise and, and just really rural and country and, and all that. And uh, it was kind of the stepchild to East Baton Rouge at the time and, and Ascension Parish, the, the parishes that surround it. I'm like, dude, I'm not going to work there. And he's like, I'm telling you, man, come meet Willie Grace. So at, at the last second, about two days before I went to NOPD, uh, I was over at Adam's house. He took me to the courthouse, and he brought me in to meet Willie Grays. And I sat down, and I talked to the man for almost an hour. And 98.5% of what I do for a living is read people. And I just I loved him. I fell in love with him right away. And and he said, you know, you need to come work for me, son. He said, uh, the pay may not be the best, and it's not going to be as good as it is in New Orleans. He said, but you will always have the best equipment and the best training. And he said, you know, I want you to come work for me. I asked him about leaving a civil service job, uh, you know, to go to be an at-will employee with sheriff's officer. And he said, you don't need a union, police union or civil service. I am your police union, civil service. I will take care of you like you're my own family. And guess what? I took the job and uh, I Told him yes before I, le- before I left that day. Fast forward, uh, my first day to report to work for the sheriff's office, they, I had to go do some paperwork at the courthouse where the sheriff's office was. But then they sent me to the firing range or slash training center. Um, and I knew nobody, y'all. They, I, Adam Rice w- worked in like the civil division. And I, I, I mean, I knew none of these deputies worked the road. I, I wasn't from there. Um, and I show up. And I walk into the training center, and the SWAT team is in there practicing uh, um, some different maneuvers. And who do I see? Brian Paul Smith. And remember, he's swole up, muscle, muscle dude. And he sees me, and he cuts right out of the middle of the practice and came up and gave me a big hug and big smile. He said, man, yeah, I like calling me Hoss. Hey, Hoss, I heard you coming, and, 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 and damn glad to have you here. And I'm like, we picked up a relationship instantly, right? And uh, we ended up being on the same shift together on the east side. So we literally cut our teeth. There's a million stories in uniform patrol, and we've been through it together, the thick and the thin. And I'm going to tell you something. Again, And when I was my most fit as a young man, I wouldn't want to fight this dude because I'm not saying I've seen it happen, but it, I, I know he could knock out a much larger man with a single punch, knock him out cold. He was, he was a bad dude. 
you didn't want you didn't want to piss them off, but it took it's like me, it takes a whole lot to piss them off. But anyway, so we worked the street together and he's from Livingston Parish, born and raised from from Albany, and he made detective, I don't know, six months or so before I did, and then I made detective and he was being trained under uh, Detective Robert Ardon. He's a character, a great guy. Love him to death, Robert, if you're listening. Love you. Uh, learned a lot from you. And I came up under Chucky Watts, and um, who I call Dear Old Dad. Another great guy, great law enforcement professional, and a hell of a homicide investigator. And But it wasn't long before the powers that be put Brian, Paul, Smith, and I together as partners. Now, you got two young thoroughbreds back then we were. Uh, and so they kind of let us run free. Norris Hull was the chief of detectives and, and sometimes we got in trouble and sometimes we may have been a little over eager. <laughs> we, we didn't do anything uh, uh, that outrageous, I guess, but we learned from our mistakes and went on. But um, we were a kick-ass detective partner team and, and, you know, I'm going to be telling you some of the best stories in the future. But back to it. This time, it was March of 2006. Uh, we had the weekend, Brian, Paul, and I did. Now, the detectives, uh, we didn't have that many. We had like eight general detectives, and you covered everything from a theft of a garbage can to homicide. And on the weekends, you and your partner covered it. One of you covered the day shift, one of you covered the night shift, and you didn't call the other one out unless it was some serious sugar turn to shit, right? Blood hit the ground. And Brian and I rotated that that out every other time we went on nights. And he was on nights, and I was on the day part. And he called me early in the morning hours of Saturday morning. I think it was a really late Friday night, probably about... Two o'clock, two thirty in the morning, and he said, and, and he called me, and I, I knew shit was going down, right? And so he calls, and he says, "Hey, house, I need you to get over here. We got a shooting." I said, "What is it?" And he said, "Well, they're saying it's an, uh, an attempted suicide." He said, "But something's not right, and I need you to come on down." And not a problem. I didn't live probably ten minutes from where he was, so I rolled. I got dressed, and I rolled out. Went down to this brand new apartment complex in Denham Springs, high, very high end, uh, gated community, et cetera. Pull up to the location, and I see Brian Paul outside with a white male and a, a, a couple of the uniform patrol guys that that were outside. And the white male was Frank Albert Ricks, y'all. And so I see him talking to him, and, and I pull up, and, and Brian walks up to me. I said, what's up? He said, this guy was out with his girlfriend or fiance. I, I think it was fiance at the time. And he said they went out, and they got into an argument while they were out partying. And they argued on the way home, and then they got to the apartment. They went in. They were getting ready for bed. He said he went in the bathroom to brush his teeth. And when he came out of the bathroom, Nicole was standing and she had a pistol to her head and she shot herself and killed herself. And I was like, all right. And um, so we had to work it. Now you, you treat any suicide or probable suicide as a homicide and until you can prove otherwise or prove it one way or another, right? And so my first thing 
he just said that he's Brian VP said this dude's not right and just come talk to him. First thing on walk up, I'm looking at him. He's a clean cut white male. Uh, he's got blood all down his shirt and down his pants, uh, his shorts that he had on, and and some on his legs and everything. And I'm looking at him, but he he didn't. I mean, I'm talking about a lot of blood, y'all. And and I'm looking at him, but he didn't have any blood from that I could see from his shirt sleeves down. So I just filed that one away, right? Introduced myself in uh, as Detective Overton, and, and actually Brian introduced me, and I tell him, told him hello, and I said, hey, can you tell me what happened? And he gave me the same verbatim story that he and his girlfriend had been out. They were they were arguing, uh, and they got home, and she shot herself. Okay, cool, no problem. Except for, I noticed his pupils were extremely dilated, and then while he was talking to him, he kept sniffing. And and he's very excited, y'all. His his demeanor was um, natural. So anybody would have been excited if you just witnessed your loved one shooting themselves. But this was kind of an erratic behavior. Now, he knew what he was doing. He knew uh, he spoke coherently. But I knew, uh, I saw his pupils. I saw the sniffling, et cetera. And I knew Brian and I had been working together long enough that he knew what I knew, right? And and I told him, I said, look, you stay here with these guys. We're going to uh, go in and work the scene. Now, the shooting victim, y'all, uh, was Nicole Francois, and she was 20 years old, and Rick's was 25, I think. Uh, um, she had been transported by ambulance to Our Lady of Lake Hospital with a gunshot wound to the head, so she's not there. So we're taking our time, we're, you know, working it. We go, go to the door. We had a uh, crime scene off the the hallways of the apartments. Like when you walk up, they have stairways that go up to the t- top four apartments, and you had four downstairs. His was the last one downstairs to the right. We're walking up, and we're out of earshot. BP said, "What you think?" I said, "He's high as a motherfucker." And I said, uh, "Looks like cocaine, probably." And he said, "Yep." He said, "I thought so too." And uh, so we had our cameras, and then we started to shoot our way in because. You don't call the crime scene on everything, right? And, and and especially until you know that you need it. So most suicides, we work we work on ourselves. You shoot it, everything, photograph it like it's a homicide until you can't prove that it's not a suicide. So get to the door, take the first shot. You can never, and I used to teach the young guys, you can never take too many photographs of a, of a crime scene or a suicide scene or whatever because you're never going to get a chance to get it in this state again, Right. So the door opens. Uh, you're facing it. The stairway runs above your head to, to the uh, upstairs unit units, and you're facing the doorway. It's a red brick wall. To the left, uh, he had a. It was a one bedroom downstairs apartment. To the left, there's a wooden fence. Uh, I guess he had a, his little squared in patio. You walk in the door. Immediately on your right is a couch. It's a small living room, a uh, couch and a recliner and a television, and a coffee table. Immediately on your left is a kitchen, uh, like a round dining room table. Uh, you can't call it a dining room, but like a kitchen table and a couple chairs, and the kitchen's right there. Snapping the photographs, walking through, going back, you go straight back to the bedroom. The door was open, and this is what I see when I walk into the bedroom. Immediately, you're looking in the bed was a full-size bed. It was it was uh, 
put to the my left all the way against the wall. Okay. And it had a headboard and a footboard. And immediately to your right, when you come into the room, is the bath bathroom that he said he came out of. That door was open. That now there is a a empty space in between the bathroom and the bed floor that's that's supposed to be clear uh, normally. And they on the bed there was a bedside table and uh and a chest of drawers directly in front of me, and the closet was in a corner off to the right. When I walk in, we're photographing it all. And I photographed, the first thing that struck me was the amount of blood that was on the bedroom floor where he said she was standing in that spot and shot herself. And and um, the blood had already started to congeal, meaning it had been there a while, right? And I, and I, I said, Brian, what time did you get the call? He says, I just got it, Hoss. He said, I, I mean, he said, uh, maybe 20 minutes before I called you, asked, well, this shit ain't right, right? I mean, the blood's been here for a little bit. And he said, yep. And so we're shooting that, and I look, and then, I mean, not disturbing the crime scene, not walking in the blood or anything else, and then, fuck, the next thing I noticed, there's no pistol. And now, this is Brian's first time seeing it. I said, dude, where's the gun? He said, I don't know. I, he said, I didn't ask him that. And he, I said, assumed it would be here. And the uh, so I photographed it through, without touching anything, photographed the bathroom. Um, there were some wash towels uh, that had blood on them, which would be consistent with him washing his arms. And But anyway, so we photographed it all up, and I said, BP, but, you know, let's go back and hit him up. Um, so we got him to the side, actually let him sit down on the steps. Didn't advise him his rights, because at this point, he's still not a suspect. But I asked him, I said, can you tell me where the firearm is, where's the pistol? And he was like, looking all around back and forth, he was thinking, right? And I said, guys, I said, you're thinking too hard. Where's the fucking pistol? I mean, he, um, he's, he's like, I don't know, I don't know. And then I said, okay, now you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be against you in the court of law. You have the right to an attorney prior to and during any question. If you can't afford one, a court appointment for you, do you understand your rights? And he's like, yeah. I said, listen, you're not under arrest. I said, but, you know, you can't tell me where the pistol's at. So that brings up a little bit of suspect in my mind. And and then Brian Paul says, you understand you're not under arrest, right? And he said, yes, sir. And he, he said, look, uh, you don't know what happened to the guy. And he said, nope, I, I don't know. I don't know where it's at. And, and I asked him, I said, what about your arms? I said, I, I said, you, you said you sat there and you held her, right? And and he said, yeah. I said, let me, let me back up, take it back a second. I said, when did this happen? He said, oh, it happened. Uh, it happened right before, before I called 911. I, and that didn't jive with the blood being congealed, sort of starting to form up. And so we knew we had him in another lie there. And then I said, what about your arms? I said, you said you sat there and held her, right? He said, yeah. I said, why do you have blood? On your, on your shirt, in your pants, but you don't have any blood on your arms. And he was like, oh, he said, I washed my arms. I, and, I, and Brian said, why'd you wash them? And he said, because I didn't want her blood on me. He said, well, shit, man, you got her blood all over you. He said, well, if, you, if you're going to wash your arms, why didn't you take your shirt and, and pants off too? And he was like, oh, I don't know, I don't know. So we stopped right there, and, and BP motioned me over and when we went and talked, I said, look, man, we got to find that pistol. Uh, um, we, we need to go ahead and call the crime lab out. Then this, this dog won't hunt, right? He's full of shit. 
And so we called dispatch, had them get the state police crime lab in route. And we went back in. Now he's still under the watchful eye of a deputy. We went back in and looking in without stepping in the blood, et cetera, and actually found the pistol underneath the mattress. Get that, right? It was, a, I think it was a Keltec um, 32 caliber semi automatic hand pistol. I think it was Keltec. I, I might be wrong on that, but it was definitely was a 32, a small semi automatic. So left it, go back out. And BP said, we need to hit him on dope, man. We need to hit him on dope. And, and uh, we go back out, talk to him again. You're not under arrest. Didn't tell him about finding the pistol. Didn't question him about that at the, at the time. And uh, said, hey, man, tell us about what happened tonight. You said y'all were out and you got in a fight. Where were you? And he told us where they were at. And they got in a fight, et cetera, and coming home. And I said, okay, what vehicle were you in? He said, we were, we were in the only vehicle we have. It's my car. I said, which one? And he pointed to, I think it was a red sports car, in the parking lot. And I said, well, I said, has anybody been in that car since you got home? He said, no, I've got the only set of keys. I said, so, uh, I said, is there anything illegal in your car? I said, any narcotics, firearms, bazookas, tanks, dead bodies, whatever. And, and he was like, uh, not that I know of. And I looked at Brian Paul and he looked at me every single time I've ever asked anyone, is there anything illegal in your vehicle? And they say, not that I know of, you guarantee you they got the shit, they got the goods, right? So now I had to get him permission to search the car. And I was like, look, and you don't mind signing a, a consent for us to search your car. And he's like, why do you want to search my car? I said, because now, you know, we have a potential crime scene. Like I told you, we have to treat this as a homicide until we can prove different, right? And until we can prove it's a suicide. I said, I just need to make sure there's no blood in the car or anything that maybe she wasn't, she was beating up on you or something. Um, I said, I mean, you can give permission or not. And he hesitated. Brian said, listen, Hoss. And then he flipped that Brian Paul face on that stern look. And you don't want to fuck with him. I'm telling you. And Brian said, we do it the easy way or the hard way. We certainly get a search warrant for this car. You can sit here all night while we get a judge, et cetera. Or you can freely and voluntarily sign it over. One way is going to take a whole lot more of your time. We get paid either way. And the guy was like, he's still sniffing and, kind of bounce around a little bit, right? And um, he said, well, I'll sign it. I don't, I don't care. I'll sign it. And so he signed it, and we had the deputies watching him. We opened the car, and Brian Paul recovered a Kimber 1911 45 semi-automatic from, I think it was under the driver's seat, and I found a large bag of powder cocaine. And I'm not talking about for personal use. I'm talking about the could have been cut up for distribution in the console of the car. It's kind of hidden like a, behind a little plate. And so we got out and asked him, I said, is this yours? And he said, nope, I don't know anything about it. And I said, well, you're fucking under arrest for it because uh, you told us nobody else had the car. It's, certainly we had probable cause but uh, to arrest him. So we arrested him for carrying a firearm with a controlled dangerous substance and possession with intent to distribute a controlled dangerous substance being cocaine. Now, we weren't real there looking for dope charges, y'all, but we knew this case was going to be much bigger than what it was, and we need we needed to hold him, uh, and it wasn't illegal. I mean, the 
probable cause 50% plus one, and we had it. And, and then he said nobody else had been in the car. It's then there, therefore he had the keys to the car that's in his possession. So we hooked him and booked him, uh, or actually we hooked him and had one of the uniformed deputies take him to the jail and put him in the booking room. Meanwhile, the crime lab comes and works the scene. The pistol is recovered, uh, and evidently it was going to be a contact wound on the victim because the pistol had what we call blowback in the barrel. Now, blowback is when you put a weapon to somebody, whether in the front of the head or the side of the head, and it's making contact, when the bullet ejects from the barrel with the fire and the uh, gunpowder, it actually tears the skin, the force of the barrel, and it tears the skin. And what it does, it not only leaves the round hole where the barrel is, if there's a sight on the front of the weapon, it makes it tear. It leaves an identical tear for what the, the, the barrel is, which means it was a touch contact wound. Now, if it had been a little bit further away, there had been no skin and, and bone matter that came back into the gun. So what I'm telling you is, if you got a contact wound that goes off, the explosion goes inside of your head, but some of it blows back out. That's why they call it blowback, and it blows into the barrel. Okay, crime scene's process. It's late now. I mean, it's like early morning hours, uh, sun is coming up. We still got to go to the hospital and, and find out about the victim. So we go to Our Lady of the Lake, and I'll never forget it. Uh, we always had the badge in, sign in. And she was, she had already been moved to ICU. She wasn't in the emergency room. Um, we went up there and talked to the ICU doctor that was on, and he said, absolutely, uh, she's dead. Uh, she's on life support now. They were, I guess they were trying to look at maybe doing um, organ donor or whatever because she was young, really, really pretty girl, uh, 20 years old. Um, the pictures I saw in the apartment, you could tell she's just pretty because – when we got in to see her in the ICU, there was no lights on, just the blue light above the bed, and her whole head was wrapped. Uh, uh, they had tried to go in, and but they, they realized she was brain dead, and and they kept she was still in the life support. And of course, I, I guess they were contacting the family members and um, maybe wanting to get their last goodbyes. And she had a significant sized family, but I'm looking at her. I'm thinking, shit, how sad it is. But because when, when someone is shot that close up, it just messes everything up, right? It really distorts your features. You don't almost, you don't even look human because the force of all the fracture skull and everything and the, your face swelling and all that contain. She just looked like a, I don't know, it was bad. The, the, and her head's wrapped in the white stuff and the, she's hooked up to all the machines, the breathing machines and the, the little thing doing the beep beep. Uh, on her heart, but the doc said, absolutely, she's dead. It's just a matter of time. So we leave. We found out uh, from questioning him that the place that they went to was a strip club. And now this is where I'm going to kind of get graphic on some stuff, and let me explain to you. Our next step in the investigation was to find out where, where they got into the argument at, try to find any witnesses, et cetera. And what happened was, they had gone out that night, and she wanted to stop by the place where she used to work, uh, which was Southern Comforts uh, uh, in Ascension Parish, uh, which had been a strip club forever, and it's closed down now. And I say strip club, and I'm going to define that for you. Generally considered, there's three types of clubs, strip clubs, different ends of the spectrum, right? Like you have a good and bad in every profession. On the very top high end 
of the whatever you want to call it, clubs, the exotic dancers, the private dance, whatever. We have what we call the gentlemen's clubs. And these are the clubs where they charge like $30 to get in. Everybody's wearing suits and ties and it's $30 a drink. And you have all the top performers from around the world, you know, the class acts uh, um, doing their performances, et cetera. And it's really high end upscale uh, balancer every two feet. You know, I'm just the best of the best. Right. And then on the other side, the opposite end of the spectrum you have, and don't take offense people. I'm just telling you what the terminology is, what they call titty bars. And then not it's T I D D Y is a street term, titty bar, not titty common spelling. The titty bar is just short of a whorehouse. All right. And these are the nastiest places uh, uh, you've ever been. And, uh, I'm going to tell you about another homicide I worked that actually Brian Paul and I worked together where we had to go to a titty bar. And then you walked in this place, the stage was set up on cinder blocks and it had a, a piece of plywood was the stage. Okay. And it was concrete floors. It looked like a gun and knife club. If, if When you went in the door, if you didn't have a gun and a knife, they, they should have issued you one. Right. I'm talking about a rough fucking place. And we had to interview somebody there that night. So it, it led to another interview with a girl, and this will always stick in my mind, another interview with a girl who used to work there, that homicide did, and she told me, she said, I said, I asked her about working there, she said, oh, that night we went in, the the dancer that was on the stage was had to be at least eight months pregnant. And, and I'm, I'm just telling you the hard, cold facts of the different ends of the spectrum and how rough this place was. And and I'm not knocking the, the girls from dancing, y'all. Not at all. Everybody has to make a living and, and all that. I'm, I'm just telling the story. So the, the girl that we interviewed, I interviewed afterwards, she said, yeah, I did dance there. She said, I quit, I quit quick. She was an older lady now, uh, but she had been a dancer her whole life, an exotic dancer, a stripper, whatever you want to call them. Um, she, and I said, why'd you quit? She said, because if you wouldn't, sucking dick and and uh when you were giving private dances in the back room you wasn't suck, sucking dick for ten dollars you wouldn't making a dime yeah I, I was like what and she said yes yeah. she said they had little cubicles in the back with a curtain on it and you you were expected to go back there and perform prostitution she said as a matter of fact there was a spit bucket on the side of the chair and i was like fuck i wouldn't be want to be the one to have to clean those out at the end of the night right but southern comfort the uh where we're going to was it in the middle now and they're commonly referred to as strip clubs where everybody you know your average joe goes and and they have dancers and you can get a lap dance a private dance or whatever but you, know, you drink and they come out on a stage and all of, all these uh the strippers or the dancers whatever you want to call them have a they don't use the real names they use like sunshine or butterfly or some shit like that right or shooting star you know uh, um Southern Comfort was in the middle range, and I, I knew about Southern Comfort personally. I can tell you from the mid-'90s when my best friend's bachelor party, I took him there, uh, and we knew we were going to be doing a lot of drinking. It was a bachelor party, and they had an old seedy motel behind it, and we didn't want to have to drive. And I say directly behind it. It had like 15 rooms, and we went, went in to get the room and it was the Auburn-Alabama game. They call it the Iron Bowl. And I remember this clearly because if if Auburn beat Alabama, then LSU was going to get to go to whatever bowl it was that year for the first time. I think it was the Peach Bowl or something. So go into this hotel, which is behind Southern Conference, 
in as a foreigner working a desk. And, and I asked him, uh, he could barely speak English. I said, uh, do you have ESPN? Because we weren't going to stay there if they didn't. We wanted to watch the game and then go to the club. He said, ESPN? I said, yes, sir, do you have ESPN on your TV? He said, you like ESPN? I said, yes, we want to watch the Iron Bowl tonight, Auburn, Alabama. He said, yes, ESPN all day long. ESPN, for sure, for sure. Shit. We, we, we got a double room, went to it and go in. It was the nastiest thing ever, but they had an old, it should have been a black and white TV, square box with a dial on it. Bitch didn't even have a remote control. I turned it on because it was game time. I turned it on. It had three channels, and all three of them were piped in porno. And I was like, uh, the guy asked when we were, uh, I was rendering, he said, do you want it by the hour or by the night? So I knew we were in the wrong place, right? But I went back to him. I said, hey, man, you said you had ESPN. He said, yes, ESPN every day, all day. I was like, fuck, fuck it. So we went to the club. Um, fast forward 2006, Brian and I wait until Saturday evening to go there to, to interview the girls uh, or the people who had been there the night before. And what had happened was Nicole and Rex went to, Nicole wanted to go see her friends there, her dear friends. I think there were four of them that worked there. Uh, she wanted to go have drinks with them, and they were going to go out. Um, and we knew those same dancers were going to be working that night. So we, we get there, and I'll describe it to you. We get to the door. First thing, you open it up, and... All strip clubs or gentlemen clubs or titty bars, they all have one thing. They got security. And there's this ginormous guy standing in the doorway, and and he looks at us. And we're not in uniform. We're, we're in uh, you know nice clothes, but we have the badge and a gun on. And he's like, you guys can't come in here. And and I was like, yeah, well, we're here, so we need to talk to your manager. He's like, you got to go outside. And I said, no, you got to go get your manager. He said, I'm telling you, go outside. And Brian Paul yeah, and one piss him off. And Brian Paul gave him that, he, he flipped that switch, gave him that VP stare and said, listen here, Hoss, we can easy way or hard way. We can call Ascension Parish Sheriff's Office out here and we, we can treat this as a crime scene. We were having to hear about a probable homicide, treat it as a crime scene and we're everybody is going to have to leave the building and we're going to search everybody before they leave. Uh, as they come out the door because they might be carrying potential evidence on him, on them, and you don't want that, do you? And the, the dude was like, mm, no, because generally in the culture, y'all, of these strip clubs, there's a lot of narcotics, right? So BP backed the guy down. He went and got his manager. Manager came out, and he's just as big as a dick. And he was like, you, you guys can't be in here. And BP said, oh, we're going to be here, and you're going to answer our questions. And easy way or the hard way. And the dudes kind of caved and gave in, right? Uh, we went back to his little office. But let me tell you about Southern Conference. You walk in, it's dark, first of all. I mean, barely lit, and it's a small place. And immediately in front of you, and you walk in, to your right is the security station. And immediately in front of you is the bar, uh, uh, like a stand-in bar. Immediately to your left, there's a couple little tables, and then there's the stage uh, um, with chairs all the way around the stage. And behind the stage in the right-hand corner was the DJ booth. And the DJ announced every dancer that was coming out, hey, y'all, Sunshine's taking the stage next. Give it up for Sunshine and played whatever song was. And they do the strip. And he used a couple songs and get tipped. Uh, it was a small, small stage. It had a, one brass pole on it, some mirrors behind it. You go to your right, 
there's a couple more tables, which I don't even know why they were there because you couldn't see the stage from those tables. But so we walk in, we hang out right, and we go back to the back corner of the bar, and that's where the manager's office was. We go in, told him who we were, um, and asked him, he said, you know Nicole Francois? I said, yeah, I know her. Uh, she's, you know, used to be here. And, and, and you know, and uh, I said, I'm looking up behind his desk, and I see these monitors. I said, hey, man, your monitors, uh, you got your tapes from last night? He said, nope. And he reached over and he punched his finger in the VHS. Uh, that's how old it was. The VHS recorder. He said, we don't, we don't even run the tapes. I said, yeah, I highly doubt that. I said, you knew we were coming. I said, you knew about Nicole getting shot last night. And he said, yeah. I said, so you knew you were, we were coming, so you pull your shit. And I get that. I said, well, here's the deal. We're not here behind any fucking dope. We're not here behind any prostitution or anything you may have going on you getting a cut of or whatever. Now this guy had tats and shit on him. He, he looked like, like he's fresh out of out of prison anyway. Um and I said, we're not here behind that bullshit. I said, we're here to find out what happened here last night. And I said, if you want us out of your hair, cooperate, you answer our questions and then you get the those girls who were there who witnessed it, answer their questions and we'll move on. And he backed down. Uh, um, but he's, he said, yeah, he said that, uh, Nicole and, uh, her boyfriend had come in the night before and they started partying with, uh, Frank Ricks. They started partying with the girls on the far side. So when you're facing the stage, there's a couple of little tables to the left. And I told you about the ones around, but there was a, actually a bench along the back wall to the DJ booth. And he said they were sitting there they were partying they were drinking well, i'm sure there was some other shit going on right uh but he said they were having a good time until nicole decided to get on the stage and dance uh one more time and uh he said she got on the stage and started to dance and rick got insanely jealous and ended up pulling her off the stage and he had security bounce him out of the house that was his statement, and it wasn't very forthcoming. So we had him, told him, I said, go outside, uh, get the girls who were here. I, he said they were all there. It was the same girls dancing at night. I said, go outside and bring them to us one by one, and you, you can't be in here when we talk to them. So he did, and kind of sum it up for you. Each one of the girls that uh, were dancers there, they'd known Nicole for a long time, and some of them were like besties, Right. And they all said the same story. They said that they were having a good time. They were partying hard and everything was fine until Nicole took the stage to dance uh, uh, with another girl and started stripping and Rick's lost his shit and pulled her off the stage and then they got bounced out. But here's the kicker. Each one of them said, and told them we hear about Nicole and and they they were crying and shit and, and, um, each one of them started immediately said, no way in hell Nicole shot herself. Why? Because she's deathly afraid of guns. She will not get around a gun. She would, one of them said, said Detective Woody, uh, I went to give her a ride somewhere one day and she, before she got in the car, she said, um, you have a pistol in this car. You got any kind of guns in the car? She said, yeah, sweetie, I got a, I got a little uh, Derringer that I keep here for my safety. She said, I'm not riding with you. She said, why not? She said, I can't stand guns. I can't stand to look at them. They give me the heebie-jeebies. 
I don't know if she had a premonition of how her life was going to end or whatever, but everybody that knew her said she was deathly afraid of firearms, okay? Big red flag. Uh, so that was consistent. The, the, the fight started there. Now, actually, Ricks has uh, started dating Nicole when she worked there and then and promise of the moon and you don't have to dance anymore. Come and, and I'm going to take care of you and put you up in this nice place and you don't have to work. You don't have to do anything. And that's, that's what happened. But they also said um, when the fight started that night, when he was trying to pull off stage, she told them at each one of them said, she told him, I'm breaking up with you. This is fucking it. I'm done with you. Uh, I'm breaking up with you. And, but they got balanced out. So, Get done with the interviews with them. One consistent thing is Nicole was going to break up with him. Number two is that uh, she was definitely afraid of firearms and wouldn't wouldn't have touched one with a ten foot fucking pole. So we go back to the jail and pull him out again and start to interview him and start to punch the holes in the, in the story and confront him about the the gun being under the bed. He said, "Well, I might have put it there. I don't know." confronted him about um, how long it was until he called 911. And he said, well, I don't know. Uh, it may have been a while. I mean, he said he's had well over 24 hours to come down off his cocaine, and he's thinking clearly for sure now, right? But he's had a long time sitting in the cell. He wasn't getting a bond until we got done with him. Um, and he, he, the, the gun being under the mattress, he said, I, 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 I moved it there. I hid it there. Why? I don't know. I, and I said, tell me about Nicole and guns. And he said, she was definitely afraid of me. He said, I couldn't even have one in the apartment. He said, a matter of fact, I had to, I had to hide the one that I had kept in the apartment for protection. And I'm like, okay, so you had to hide it. I said, which gun was it that you hid? He said, the little 32 that she shot herself with. I said, so you're telling me you get home from the club um, in you're fighting and you come out and she's found this gun and she shot herself. And, but she's definitely afraid of guns, right? I said, everybody's told her she wouldn't told us she wouldn't have touched a firearm to save her life. But you're telling me she picked up this pistol and, and smoked herself. He's, and he was like kind of being quiet and BP was wearing them out too on the questions. Y'all BP were him about, uh, about washing his arms and the clothes again. Now we're, we're recording the, um, you know, we we have good shit to work off of, so we're recording them to use for trial. And BP's um, hitting him about the the in um, washing himself. Uh, and yeah, when we went to the hospital, we couldn't do a gunshot residue trace test on her hands because she had that yellow eye dye and stuff all over. Because she came in, she was covered with blood, and that's how they cleaned her off with that stuff. And um, the doctor says there's no sense it, it would kill it, but we did do a GSR on his hands. Uh, or the crime lab did it, and it, that came back negative at a later date because he had washed his shit off. Um, when we started to confront him about what actually happened while they were fighting, and I said, you got jealous when she got up on the stage and started dancing with that other girl, and, and you know, and he was like, just kind of clammed up, you know, wasn't saying too much. And I said, did she or did she not tell you that she was going to break it off with you? He didn't answer. And Brian Paul said, hey, Hoss, you think of this fucking dumbass redneck country detectives? I mean, you need to tell the truth. You need to tell what the deal is because we got your ass. He said, now it's just a 
question of how hard we have you. You know, you, you can help yourself or not, right? And then he just kind of shut up. And um, so we had him on. We have the witnesses that see him get into her with her at the place. He pulled her out of this place first of all, promised her the moon, uh, put her up the whole nine yards, and in she wants to go back uh, to go out before they go out somewhere to eat or whatever. They end up partying. Partying gets a little out of hand. She takes the stage. He loses it, pulls her off. If we're on a God and everybody, she tells him, I'm, I'm breaking up with you. When we get home, it's over with, et cetera. Everybody says she's definitely afraid of guns. Uh, wouldn't have touched it for nothing. And she goes home and shoots herself. A dog won't hunt. We charge him with second degree murder. Circumstantial? Ah, uh, well, you know, fuck, it is what it is. We're not going to let him get away uh, with calling it a suicide. Well, what happened was Brian went to the autopsy. Oh, she died, y'all. I, I think it like um, it was Sunday afternoon when we got the call that she actually died in the hospital. She, she died of her own will, even being on the machines. Uh, so uh, we didn't both go to autopsies all the time, and I was doing other things. Brian, it was he reported personal scenes, so he went to the autopsy and he called me after. He said, "Definitely, definitely contact wound to the head." Uh, but not in a position where you would think a person would just put the gun to the side of the head and go it. It appeared to be maybe like they were struggling over the gun and he, he forced it down on the ground and shot her in the head. And that's what we charged him with, second-degree murder. Uh, a lot of circumstantial evidence, cases have been made off, off of less, but when you take the fact that he, he waited, he had tried to hide the gun, I don't know what the fuck he was thinking about that, um, he washed up, he waited before he called, he lied, he minimized uh, the altercation in, at the strip club, the whole nine yards. He, you know, her fear of guns, um, the, the witnesses to the fight, et cetera. So as we booked him on second degree and left the dope charges. And as on so many cases, y'all, that we worked, if you didn't get a subpoena for it to show up for court for, or, or uh, subpoena for trial. Usually there was a motion to suppress or whatever because that's the freebie for the defense. But if you didn't get the subpoena for it, then shit, you had a hundred other cases that you were working at. I'd never thought about them again, right? And we didn't follow up on every victim. And I actually called Brian. Uh, it, Brian Paul Smith now, y'all, is, is the chief criminal deputy for the Livingston Parish Sheriff's Office. So at a boy to him, he rose up to the ranks. He's, I mean, he's as high as he can get. And, uh, you know, proud to call him a friend. He's a good, solid dude. But And I call him, say, hey, man, you remember that case? And he was like, yeah, 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 yeah. And um, actually, they didn't take it to trial. They, uh, he pled to negligent homicide. But he at least he had to stand before the court and admit that he shot her, okay? And so when you, when you do a plea bargain, and you plead guilty, they dropped the charge. The DA dropped them down to negligent homicide. Same reasoning why, mm, yeah, there's a lot of circumstantial stuff, but even some of the witnesses, uh, regular people who who go to church on Sundays and all that stuff, they they may not seen so favorably by dancers or strippers, whatever you want to call them, being the witnesses to the fight and, and, and the victim um, having previously worked there, et cetera. But, 
it is what it is. That's the DA's decision is out of our hands. They, they dropped the negligent homicide. Um, and what negligent homicide means when you show such a lack of care for another person's life that you, that, that you cause an accident or you cause their death. It usually it's used in like, um, DWI cases and stuff like that, but very rarely on, on gun cases. But he, he went to prison and, 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 and not for a long time, and it'll never bring young 20-year-old Nicole back. And God, our uh, prayers and thoughts go out to the family. She was loved by a lot of people. It's a tragic, tragic way uh, to end a life. But at least that piece of shit went to prison. And one thing he had to do, as you do on any plea bargain, you can't just get up there and say, I did it. You know, the court makes you stand. In the state of Louisiana, they make you stand up and say what you did. And you commit the act of what you did. And he said that they got home, that she was going to break up with him. Uh, they got into uh, uh, an altercation, and he had the gun in his hand. He accidentally shot her. Well, that's bullshit. But to take it to trial and prove otherwise, whatever. He went to prison. Again, I, I'm sure, and, and he probably is listening to this podcast now because that was in 2006. He, I don't think he got more than five years. I think the max you can get on negligence and homicide is 10 years. Shitty, shitty sentence, but at least he had to go to prison and hopefully he got some prison justice. And he, he was 25 and she was 20. So, but that's it. Um, private dancer, just an old story. Uh, um, so yeah, it's a sad case. Uh, I, y'all, I'm recording a live video for the Patreon members. I just looked over at the screen. It's a sad case, sad, tragic ending to life. But just think how sad it would have been if this some bitch would have got away with saying she committed suicide. So I'm, I'm proud of that. And, and uh, not every case is, uh, not every case is going to be resolved to, you know, a gung-ho detective wanted to be his ass locked away for the rest of his life, which he should have been. But at least he had to admit to her family and to himself that he killed her and he had to serve time. And hopefully, like I said, he was uh, tossing salads and washing dirty underwear for some big bull on the cell block because he was a pretty white boy. Um, that's it. I'm going to conclude this episode of Private Dancer, season five, episode one. And as always, I appreciate and love each and every one of y'all. Please continue to share us and like us, uh, share, share, Real Life Real Crime on social media. A Real Life Real Crime friends, fan, and crew private page on Facebook. I asked for um, people to invite members the other day. We had 360 new members in one day. So you lifers are, are unbelievable. I love y'all. You make the show what it is. We've grown. Our numbers are phenomenal. We've grown. We've grown because of y'all. And I really, really, really appreciate you. Each and every one of you. Thank you so much. Um like us and share us and whatever, Instagram and Twitter. We have all that good stuff. I don't really know about it, but thank you for listening. And uh, a couple quick updates. One, Barbara Blunt's case. Okay. COVID happened, y'all. COVID messed us all up. And we were rolling on that. The uh, Sheriff Jason Ard had a crew on it. I mean, we were rolling, rolling, rolling. I'm telling you, those boys were getting it. We were, I was getting it. I was getting it. Boots on the ground. And it, well, I'm still taking calls. I took a call yesterday 
uh, about Barbara Blunt's case. But I, again, now that Louisiana is in phase two and we're slowly reopening, we are able to pursue things again. And, we, and when we're back on it and we're going to be on it and on it and on it. So please continue to call in your tips. I think I had three this week and we, I haven't even been asking for them because we couldn't go out and do shit with it. Well, now I can. Uh, uh, so y'all please continue to call in your tips to the hotline or send it to me at Woody at real life, real crime.com. You can remain anonymous. I don't work for the sheriff. I don't work for this guys. I got people that call me every day that, that I don't tell law enforcement uh, what they told me. Right. Cause they asked me not to, but it's such an honor to, to be able to work alongside of an agency that wants this case resolved. Sheriff Arb wants this case solved. Brian Paul, the chief criminal deputy wants this case solved and they're working on it. Y'all. So keep those calls coming in. Family members, Barbara Blunt's family members, you better believe we're working on it. All right. Now, Courtney Coco, my sweet dear, that um, if I'm, I'm actually recording from home again today, y'all. And if I get up and show you, I'd show you her pictures beside my bed. And I keep her picture on the dashboard of my truck. I also keep Miss Barbara's picture on the dashboard of my truck. Says they're always with me and I, uh, I'm not giving up on them. Now, Courtney Coco, let's talk about it. Without divulging too much, I want, I want to spend some time on this because it's so important. It's been so long. Y'all know the work that was done on the case. You know the episodes, and uh, including the final episode that I dropped by myself where I laid it out. Who's, sus- I didn't say their names, but I, suspect one is suspect two. But I only told you facts. I didn't tell you. I didn't go off into motive or speculation about why it was done. I didn't tell you everything I know. I, I got to know a shit ton more, okay? And y'all know that back in November, the DA brought in Miss Stephanie um, and the family. That When that family rolls, they roll tight. Stephanie, Miss Anna, uh, um, I call her Ma, and, and uh, uh, Lynn and Michelle, they, they, rolled, they rolled together. They, they gave me the best case file I've ever seen better than any police case file when we started, when I started with the boots on, on the ground on, on, in Alexandria, right? That they had every single document for all those years, and, and it was fantastic. But what I'm telling you is they roll, they roll together, and they roll strong. So when they rolled to that meeting in November and a DA looked them in the face and said, we're going to make the arrest, et cetera, it give me a couple of weeks, Miss Stephanie, and the family, because I really, they don't make a decision without one another. They're really a, a tight unit that keeps each other in check, if you will, a system of checks about. This is my personal opinion. I hadn't told them this. They play off each other's strengths and weaknesses, right? But, and they all love Courtney so much. Um, but the DA told him that. And then for you to go all these months and never return a phone call and all that. Y'all have heard it talked about a thousand times. And, and, and the APD's been bashed and the DA's been bashed and all that. Well, let me tell you something. Before COVID happened, I had a plan. And, and right before, a month or so before COVID happened, we went up and did a peaceful demonstration, a cold-ass day. I had, no, I, it was cold in Alexandria. I had left Lafayette, Louisiana. By the time I got up there, I was in short sleeves shirt i actually had to borrow miss Ida's jacket because <laughs> i was about to die but we did a peaceful demonstration and and peaceful demonstrations are, are, are where you get changed but we didn't get changed that day unfortunately the da 
uh, didn't even come outside to talk to the mama, even though she was calling Miss Stephanie. But COVID is winding down, y'all. We have a plan. This is what I need to ask of each of you lifers. When I ask that y'all share that damn crew page, it's important. That number is as big as it is when we put our plan into action. Now, without going into detail, uh, I want to tell you that Miss Stephanie and I talked, and we're 1,000% in agreement. I want to ask this, especially with the way things are in the world today, and this is going to sound crazy to you. The, the amount of time and energy the life was spent blowing up the DA, blowing up APD, uh, all the national news and everything else, it's awesome, y'all. And, and keep the pressure on them is a great thing. But I'm telling you, I'm, I'm asking you, and I'm asking on behalf of Miss Stephanie, let's just for the next couple of weeks, give me two weeks, and the, the anger and the resentment and everything that you feel, Let's turn that into prayers, okay? And I don't, I don't care if, if, if who you believe in or don't believe in. If you don't believe in God, then turn it into good vibes and will for APD to make the arrest, okay? And let's watch what happens. Let's to, to take the anger. And in the beginning, when APD took the case, I know some lifers were bringing them donuts and shit, right? And so, because uh, everybody's excited, um, I know there are more great cops or more good cops than there are bad cops. And I know, and I believe in my heart in justice and I know justice for Courtney Coco is coming. And I'm asking on behalf of Ms. Stephanie and myself, even if you don't want to pray for them, lay off of them for a couple of weeks. Okay. And, and then, um, then just, just, I, I'm smiling, and the patron members can see me smiling on the video, but the, I'm, I'm smiling because I got goosebumps. It, let's lay off of them, and let's give Chief King some support. Let's give Detective Tanner some support mentally, uh, if not physically or whatever. Just send them good thoughts and or your prayers. And, and me, I'm, I'm a praying man, and, and I'm I'm, I'm going to pray that they conclude this case, uh, that God provides them whatever it is that they think it is that they need to conclude this case. And y'all watch what happens. Okay. And then on top of that, the, the plan that we have set up to go into motion, I'm going to give it these next couple of weeks until the, uh, it'll be two weeks from, from this Friday when the state of Louisiana, hopefully it should go into phase three and everything's reopened. And we absolutely going to blow cocoa out of the water. Okay. So just because, the mama's asking you, and I'm asking you, let's flip the script. Let's throw them a little support, and let's believe that that there are still good people out there that are going to do their jobs. The, um, and I'm talking about specifically a Chief King and Detective Tanner. So I can't give you more than that now. Uh, uh, I can't tell you what I know, but I tell you that I love you, and I appreciate you. And for Miss Barbara Blunt and for Courtney Coco, um, we're coming for justice, baby. Okay. And look, all the rest of you, your fans that send me your cases of your loved ones. You know, there's so many people that are hurting on these cold cases that, that just absolutely got screwed in, 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 uh, for whatever reason it may be. I promise you, y'all can send them to me. Woody at real life, real I have them all filed away. 
can't work them all at one time, y'all. I can't do everything at one time. I will read them. And, and when God provides me with the time and the financial means to, we're going to take on the next case, all right? I'm, I'm going to get with it and do what it does. But meanwhile, while we're blunt, keep your tips coming in. Courtney Coco sends some positive thoughts and love to those people that they close it out. And then when I can, in two weeks, we'll tell you uh, uh, what the plan of action is. But hopefully we won't, we won't have to go to a plan of action. And, and that's what I'm expecting. So the, uh, thank you all. The, the, the patron members are showing support for my, my statement and for Miss Stephanie's request. So uh, too much else, y'all. I love you and appreciate you. Um, we're moving forward. Change happens, y'all, in every phase of life. To, to people, things change, organizations change, change has to come about. We'll keep you posted on things that, as um, I'm available to or as I can, and, and uh, I'll update you about everything real life or crime as soon as I can. If I'm not updating you about something yet, it's just because I can't. So I love you. Enough of me rambling on. Um, I don't know what else to say. Thank you all for letting me tell your stories. Thank you for the for uh for sitting around and listening to me. I appreciate it. I'm smiling ear to ear. I love y'all. Leave us a review if you get a chance on iTunes. Uh invite people to join the crew. That's important. And I'm Woody Overton, your host of Real Life, Real Crime the Podcast. And until next time, forever, don't let me catch you down on murder by you. Peace. <laughs> Real Life Real Crime is a true crime podcast brought to you weekly by Woody Overton, Jim Rathman, and executive producer Toby Tomplay.